when it comes to these puzzles and when it comes to the buy-in, much like squatting for speed with 40 kilos differentiates our starters, like also by and large, a lot of the girls that are good at solving these puzzles are our best players. That was Rhett Larson. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. In sport, stepping on the field, stepping on the court of play is so much more than any one thing. It is more than tactics. It is more than technique and skill. It is more than your physical abilities. It is more than your mental and emotional abilities and robustness. It is the integration of all that. And although there's definitely the need for specialists in that sports performance continuum, the sport coach, the strength coach, the rehab team, and the sports psychologist, and so on and so forth, sports science, it is ultimately the way that we can integrate this and create dynamic transfer to sport itself that can not only build more robust and effective athletes, but also just drive immense enjoyment of the process because it's that integration that makes us human. I'm so excited to have our guest today, Rhett Larson. Rhett is a physical preparation coach with an extensive and a diverse background. He's worked internationally with the national volleyball teams of Germany, Netherlands, and China, but he's also worked with athletes of all ages, having prior experience at Velocity Sports Performance, where he served as the director of coaching in California. Red is a student of movement. He studied not only the top minds in sports performance, but also in general movement training, such as physical education, methods taught by Ido Portal, and he has a view of the process of athletic development that we can all learn tremendously from. Rhett came on my radar recently. He wrote an article for Sportsmith about his warm-up process that was just dynamic and integrated and encapsulated so many fun movement variables. I was blown away and I knew I had to get him on the podcast. On the show today, Rhett will take us through his evolution as a coach, how his warm-ups and his training have evolved, and he'll be covering extensively his pre-sport practice warm-up that involves so many elements of athleticism, that involves the strength piece, the robustness piece, the skill piece, constraints piece, gamification. After you listen to this show, I really don't think you'll be looking at sport itself, not even just the warm-up, but that whole process in the same way. Really excited to get you guys this show, so let's get to episode 330 with Rhett Larson. Before we get started, quickly want to highlight our sponsors. First, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to get 15% off your Lost Empire Herbs order, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. They also have a free pine pollen promo. You can grab a bag of pine pollen for only the modest cost of shipping. You can get that at justflypinepollen.com. Absolutely love Lost Empire Herbs, their company, their mission, anything I can get that is natural. And Logan Christopher, their CEO, does an amazing job of sourcing the herbs that you'll get from their company. So absolutely love Lost Empire Herbs. Be sure to check them out. Second sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have been with us since the beginning. Amazing company, amazing customer service. If you have sports technology needs, data tracking needs, velocity-based training, Rhett will be talking about that in the podcast today. KBox as well, (laughs) Rhett will be talking about. Definitely check out them. Amazing company with amazing sports science data and exercise tool offerings through their store. Amazing blog as well. So simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. We really appreciate them as a sponsor for this show. Lastly, this podcast is sponsored by the Elastic Essentials online course. If you want to see how I've integrated so many facets of what I've learned throughout running this podcast, the dozens, if not over a hundred coaches that I can say, yes, I learned this from you. I've integrated this. This works. This is a part of what I do. You can see my system. Head to justflysports.com. Click on the Elastic Essentials banner. 
Also wanted to let you know, December 10th in Cincinnati, Ohio, I will be doing a one-day clinic on explosive athletic development that includes things like sprint speed, jumping, plyometrics, throwing. It's going to be a great time. So you can also check that out on the Just Fly Sports main page. The early bird ends on November 1st. So sign up soon for that one. With that said, I give you an uninterrupted show with Coach Rhett Larson. Rhett, awesome to have you on the show, man. Hey, I know um, you, you spent a lot of time abroad in other cultures, and I know that you've probably changed your process, especially like with the warm-ups like we'll be talking about throughout the show. But what have you learned uh, being outside of the United States about sports performance that you wouldn't have otherwise gathered? I love this question. I have, uh, you know, it's, it is by far the most impactful decision I've ever made was to go over, leave the United States and, you know, in 2011, go over to China for what I thought would be just a year long stint through Exos or athletes performance at the time. But the moment that I got over there and I saw the kind of the the big wide world of different approaches to strength training. I mean, let's be clear. It's, it wasn't just the strength training that I loved about being abroad. It, you know, as somebody that loves a good story and a good adventure, like I just, I just sucked the marrow out of all these experiences to see as many, as many stories as I could get to bore people with it, uh, happy hours for the rest of my life. But what you also learn is that God, there's so many different approaches to doing what we do in strength and conditioning. I thought I was pretty well read on different ways to to skin the cat. And when I got abroad, I met so many different coaches who were incredibly good at what they did and had a coaching style that couldn't have been more different than my own. I work with German coaches who you know, have just tons of gold medalists that they've trained that just spend most of their time huddled over a computer watching video replays and giving kind of quiet, very specific, wonderful feedback to their athletes who don't need them to be the excitable rah-rah coach that I can admittedly become Mm -hmm. when I get into a weight room and I start getting excited. I, I worked in the Netherlands, you know, and and the coach that trained the volleyball team, uh, you know, the kind of the junior team under my team was a Franz Bosch disciple who had studied so much uh, with him that that was a completely different way of training that completely opened my eyes. And that's just two examples. I mean, you've seen I've seen strength coaches and speed coaches from around the world, and they they teach me how to that I need to tie my shoes differently if I want to jump higher. It's uh, you know. Really, really interesting. And not only that, but I should also mention that it's also often very financially rewarding to to be working in a place where you're not paying to live, where someone else is paying you to uh, to have a roof over your head and all your meals. So if you're a young coach, this is my quick shout out, or this is my quick public service announcement, that if you want to uh, to save some money in your younger years or your later years, then you, it's a great place to do it is working abroad where you uh, keep expenses minimal and you can actually afford to maybe retire at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard even just for college in general, university in general, like just a, a student uh, spending time abroad actually before you go make your college decision, just being a valuable idea or thought process, just because so often we don't, we don't get outside of our box. We don't expose ourselves to different ways of thinking or different possibilities, different cultures. We just kind of keep following the line, you know? So, yeah, I, I mean, sorry, I, I don't want to cut you yeah, off. No, you go just ahead. got me excited. I mean, you're talking to someone right now that I just 
invested a bunch of money in the Portuguese economy so that I can become a Portuguese, my whole family can become a Portuguese citizen in the next five years, just for this reason, so that my daughter can get into European Union schools in 17 years. And, uh, and we don't have to, and I can, you know, at least open her to the idea that going to school in other countries, you know, Joel, I worked with, you know, I worked with a German team now and a Dutch team beforehand. And almost every girl in that team speaks three languages mm-hmm. perfectly. And so every time you start thinking, oh my gosh, the USA, best education in the world, we have Harvard and Yale and stuff, go over to the Netherlands for a month yeah. <laughs> and yeah. meet the young adults there. It's some of the most impressive humans I've ever met. So there it is. I remember watching a video of some <clears throat> a European reporter who they showed him fluently newscasting in six languages i was like i'm i'm behind uh, this is that's amazing to me yeah. i know i struggle so hard to learn languages and we we had a coaching change in the netherlands where we went from an american coach to an italian coach and uh, the day the italian coach arrived was the day i realized seven of the girls on the team spoke fluent italian i, <laughs> I thought oh everybody's going to speak english still nope that's not true just went to italian <laughs> yeah. With the coaching too, I feel like it's probably different on the level of both the strength coach. I was actually particularly interested in the sport coach too. Just like the, I, I do work with some players who have, who have um, moved around to different international teams, like from Spain to Germany. And they'll tell me how it's different there, how the coaching is different, which I, I find interesting. I feel like for strength and conditioning, I would imagine that the United States is probably a little more, I guess you could say, cover it with strength, like, like the idea of just painting over it with more strength type idea. How would that compare to other countries or what's expected of strength coaches? And I know even the United States is, is going away from that 1RMs at all costs like mm-hmm. type of idea. But how does the idea of max strength and like heavy barbell training, for example, differ across cultures? Oh, yeah. So if I can speak just to my experience that you know, you go to China and very much the, the strength component for a long time was just super supplementary that the, the Chinese kind of ride or die by the fact that they're just going to over practice, you know, their sport mm-hmm. to, um, so they can just get more reps and more, you know, 10,000 hours quick, more quickly than everybody else. And then you contrast that with the Netherlands, like where I said, where you have a huge contingent of guys that follow kind of a constraints-based programming model that, you know, has a strength component to it, of course, but also is very outside the box kind of thinking about the ways that they can perturb systems and, and maintain speed while adding complexity to, to a system or a movement. And so that's another whole way of thinking about this. And so what you said is 100% right, that just throwing strength at problems, you see less and less of that, I think, even in America, like you said, but uh, when you get abroad as well. Did you find differences too between just the types of athletes? Because I I know in in working at UC Berkeley, there was a lot of internationals, especially on the swim and tennis team. And there was kind of just different ways that some of the athletes would want things to be explained to them. It seemed like just from my small scale of, of reference that, that the Dutch really wanted things explained more intellectually versus others may not need that as high. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm curious too, like how your ability to just coach and communicate information may have differed across cultures as well. Yeah. You took the words out of my mouth about the Dutch because they, they definitely want 
want a why. Uh, they are an ex- a very intelligent and bought into like kind of group. But especially the contrast from going to the chi- from the Chinese system, where there is zero questioning of hmm. why you would be doing something. I could make the most asinine program for the Chinese team, and the girls would follow it to a T without anybody questioning why I would be programming a stupid exercise <laughs> to make them to make them jump higher. And which is fortunate since you know, my Chinese is good, but definitely not good enough to explain why for every exercise I choose. <laughs> so, so you contrast that with the Dutch group, those girls have a high training age. You know, they, you come into that, that team and all of them Olympic lift, Olympic lift really well. Cause they've been doing it since they were in the juniors program with coaches that are very exacting on the way that should be done. And, and, they all understand dieting, you know, like they, most of them had read more books about vegan dieting and, and all the different bio, they've all had their blood tested for exactly what they should be eating. You know, they can make 20,000 varieties of green smoothie. And yeah, I have to get into the weight room. And when I'm, when I'm bringing in a new exercise or, or even if I'm going to change fundamentally the way they warm up, which is something, of course, I'm going to do that requires me to kind of to sit down and say, hey, okay, here's the grand scheme of what I'm trying to accomplish, that this might seem like it is a little bit outside of volleyball, but let me tell you the sneaky way this is helping you. One of the things I've thought about with those different cultures as well is, for example, like an, a very intellectual, like you could call them overanalyzing, but I, I've thought, well, oh, well, maybe those athletes should be taught to turn off that part of their brain and work from a different, you know, more of that like storytelling, like, like part of their brain, mm-hmm. like that that you can't put in a, but then I also think, well, if you're trying to force someone who's wired to take on problems, movement problems intellectually, and you're forcing them to <laughs> take it on like non-verbally and from a feeling perspective, I feel like a lot of them would really struggle, like just from a belief perception, because I think I will have my ideals in my head. Oh, this is how you should learn. <laughs> and yeah. but I feel like so much of it is cultural, like it's like the one in Rome, like I mean, what's your take on that? Like, like I guess like the ideal way to learn something versus, hey, this is the culture. This is how they respond. This is this is how we operate here. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and imagine the it's like you alluded to the juxtaposition of a Dutch team that is a very cognitive group that wants to understand why and but doesn't probably think they need to be, for lack of a better term, tricked into better movement mechanics through like a constraints based system that actually was born out of. I don't know about born out of, but is recently popularized by Dutch practitioners like Franz Bosch. And yet the Dutch believe that they need to do things a little bit. They need to be innovative. They know that they're a tiny country that that has a tradition of punching above their weight internationally. They win a bunch of medals for being the size of Tennessee or whatever they are. And for that reason, they love the thought of experimenting, trying things that the rest of the world isn't doing. So even though it might not be culturally, maybe the way that they would necessarily approach it, I think they really, I know that they really love that we're doing something that the rest of the world isn't doing. So it made mm-hmm. it easier for them to swallow me, me uh, pushing kind of a different style of warmups, maybe a different vibe in the weight room than they were used to, as well as, you know, some of the constraints-based stuff that looks a little bit crazy at times. You know, they, the sport coaches there even at the national team level, we're making the girls do things with balloons and aqua bags on their back where 
you know, a serve comes over the net and instead of passing it, they just have to move to a place where the ball bounces between their legs. And, you know, and then a hundred variations on that, on that kind of theme and all of that, they, you know, and, and the proof is in the pudding. As long as they keep performing, everyone falls into line on that stuff pretty quickly. Yeah. I imagine you know, hopefully we get to this question on the constraints based system. I imagine you learned a lot then from your time in the Netherlands that you incorporated into your total system. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, sometimes when you're there, you're practicing so much, you don't get out to see a lot of people, but there's enough people doing it there. And like, and, and the great thing is, you know, on Instagram, there are three or four practitioners that I follow that are giving me great examples of how to utilize constraints all the time. I mean, that, that can be one of the problems with that kind of a principle is that it does involve a little bit of creativity. It does involve your brain being able to take a step back and see, okay, how could I take this movement problem I'm having and add a time constraint to it that would be for the good of the movement? And so you have to kind of, it's a new framework. And, and yeah, it's helpful to have people showing you the way sometimes and, and just get, kind of opening your brain to, to thinking, okay, well, you know, my coach is telling me the girls' butts are too high on defense and that we're, we're too stiff-legged on defense. And I'd be like, okay, well, what if I constrain them by just sitting them under the net and, and we just do things with them. And you know, if they got up too high, they'd hit their head on the net and that's it. And that's, that's all you have to do for constraints. <laughs> yeah. Or like, like and lunge volleyball with like a, like a big, a balloon or something. Right, or something yeah, like exactly. Right. Exactly. So, but sometimes you can get stymied, you know, it's easy for me yeah. to say that off the top of my head, but it takes me a while to figure out these things and, and, uh, seeing people do it every day really helps. That's awesome. You know, I back to just quickly, and then we'll get to the whole the warm up stuff. I'm so excited to ask you those questions. But you did mention I, I had said, oh, well, are we too max strength focused in the United States? Or, or how can we maybe see ourselves differently here in the States based off of and I know people listening to this are from all over the place. But my thought of myself is how might I see myself differently from a what do I value perspective when visiting other countries? And you mentioned in China, they at least when you had gotten there, they were maybe underdeveloped from that perspective of strength and weights. But it's easy to think of it as a pendulum too. You have underdeveloped, you have people who maybe push that button too much. And then I even with, I don't know if you spent any time in Japan, I have not, but I've worked with a few athletes from there. And I remember there was a guy, the first time I heard of blood flow restriction training, I heard it originated in Japan. And a lot of that was also due to, they use it for like even increased sensitivity. And it's a very like, of the art, you know, type philosophy there, not. Um, and so I was just curious, I guess, maybe going back to that, your thoughts on countries that, you know, maybe they were underdeveloped or, or what that balance is. I guess that's the, maybe what I'm looking for is what that balance, uh, as you've seen it, of just yeah. strength, maximal strength, having visited all these places. Yeah, one of the most impactful things that I did with the women's volleyball team in China, and I'd done it with teams before this, but most recently, of course, with the women's volleyball this is a team that before I got there, the only thing they pursued was a higher back squat. They would do eight sets of eight to 10 reps on back squat wow. and didn't matter. They didn't care about depth. They didn't care about anything other than just how much weight you could put on the bar. And after every strength training session, every single girl would put two ice bags on their knees anyway. So when I got to the team, I told the coaches, we're going to try to go a different direction, that I think this team is strong enough in squats that we don't have to pursue that anymore, which, of course, ruffled all their feathers. Everybody was up, you know, grumbling about this. And then I put 
a couple of push bands on bars. I just put 40 kilos on a bar. I asked them all to jump as high as possible with the bar. I took the results. I said, okay, here are your, here of the 20 girls on our team, here are, here they are ranked from strongest to weakest in the back squat. And we had a five RM, but in five RM, here's their strongest to weakest. Please pick out for me who your best volleyball players were. And by and large, they're the weakest girls on the team, <laughs> right? Which isn't to say they're weak. It is not to say yeah. they're weak. Oh, they're, yeah. All, yeah, they're all squatting 100 kilos, right? But the bruisers at the top of the list are not our best players by any means. And then I showed them the results. Okay, I asked them all to squat this pitifully light warm-up weight and jump with it as high as possible. Show me our best players. And yeah, they were six out of the top eight or something like that. And I said, and that was the aha moment for that team that let's stop trying to make all of our super fast weak girls into the super slow non-starters. Like, why are you trying to <laughs> make our starters into non-starters? Let's instead try to make our non-starters jump higher with lighter weight. And that's all I needed to say. I never had to fight that fight again. I propose that, hey, once we get to, we need to get to a level of strength where nobody's icing their knees afterward. We'll still stay strong. We're still going to squat strong at least one heavy at least one day a week, but we're, we're going to, a number, if it's, you know, a hundred kilos, 110, I can't remember what I picked for the Chinese, but I was like, we'll never push weight over 105 kilos in a squat going to 115 kilos. Isn't making them any better at the game of volleyball. You know, and, and that's a win-win for everybody. They leave the weight room feeling better. I, in my opinion, they're getting better. Their vertical jumps are increasing. And there's just so much more variety. They're not dreading the weight room like they used to. I mean, there used to be, you know, just slumped shoulders, heads down when they had to go hit weights after a seven-hour practice. And I'm a big weight room culture guy. Like, I I don't know that I'll ever get them, like, excited and happy about it. But I want to try to create an atmosphere in the weight room where they actually enjoy their time there and they see a benefit to going and, and and not just that, but they are actually having a good time. So I gamify it as much as I can. Anyway, that's kind of it. And so I, I everybody was having like less pain in the weight room. It was more effective, et cetera, et cetera. And that was one of the first big wins, I think, when it came to strength training. And along the lines of what you said, kind of tackling that strong enough question right from the gun. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, something Corey Schlesinger had said. He is- Basically, it was something to the tune of whatever the best players on your team in the actual sport are really good at it at the weight room, like put an emphasis on those movements. <laughs> Don't put the emphasis on what all the, the people who ride the bench are the, you know, the best at, like you said, <laughs> like the, like the, the raw one RM squat versus the rate of force development. And I imagine too, like working with coaches who want to see data, it's like, well, rather than just trying to argue, well, well, here's the data, you know, like, let me come up with something to show you the correlation and and let that do the talking versus just trying to say, well, this is how we do it or that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I've had to, in all my jobs, I've never really had an assistant coach. I did kind of in China. I take that back, but I never had someone that could help me with the data or help me in the weight room. So I've always relied on data and things like jump mats or push bands and, and the K box, like with a K meter, like I, I, I need that data to almost be an assistant coach for me because I don't have to coach up intent on a back squat or a jump. If a push band is on there and they have to write down a number into my computer after they finish a set and they know that there's a great chance that the coach is going to see that number at some point. So 
I really utilize that stuff to keep my job and to keep everybody, you know, it's another, it's, it's another reason for me to just manufacture a celebration in the weight room, honestly, is if I'm monitoring stuff, especially stuff that isn't just a new heavy weight, then yeah, it's just another reason for me to go nuts when somebody hits a new personal record. If there's three different things you could possibly get a record on that day in the weight room, that's three chances I have to go nuts when they get it. Yeah, it seems like it's always a win if an athlete can find something that doesn't require, I mean, yes, we should be energetic as coaches, but that doesn't require me like yelling at an athlete to get excited about some sort of exercise they're doing. It it should be something that provides its own intrinsic value that just motivates them just based on that setup rather than, you know, of course, we'll get excited for them when they do well, but to have to to think I'm just going to select a bunch of exercises that in themselves have little meaning and then try to motivate everybody through it versus selecting things that have more meaning, that have that that feedback, and then they can motivate themselves. It's definitely the best right. situation. And so part of that gamification for me is like when I'm designing their their workout sheets, they will know that, let's say we're doing jump squats, and it's uh, like how heavy can you get while still being 1.2 meters a second? And that's the contest for today. And a best case scenario is I'm in another corner of a gym coaching up something and I just hear hoots and hollers and screaming uh, coming from the squat corner and somebody's lifting partner is shouting out that they just hit 60 kilos, the first person in the team to put on blue plates and hit 1.2 meters a second and everybody goes nuts. Like, that's what I'm looking for. Like, I, And that's why I put, like when I'm designing the sheets, I always have their personal best on that sheet. So there's something to go for. So they... So that they are kind of recalibrating. Oh, when we did this a month ago, I got 55 kilos. Let's see if I can get 57.5. It's all part of that kind of gamification of the weight room where, you know, we're, we're trying to manufacture the, these reasons to get hype about it and just to watch your progress. You know, like that's a way to get buy-in is just to see yourself getting more powerful. Yeah, it's I mean there's there's a reason that video games are so addicting. It's like the idea to level up, but it's not real life. So yeah. it's how much cooler to level up in real life. Mm-hmm. And to yeah. it, without those like power-based metrics or jump or throw distances, then the all that might be left to level up in the weight room is just to put more weight on the bar, which is great, but if that's yeah. all your that's but that's the only way you see leveling up in the weight room, I think that can lead to issues like you said the girls who could squat the most, but weren't playing or weren't the, you know, we're not the the main players at all. And so it's to think, to creatively think of all the ways you can level up. And that just even reminds me too, and I'm sure we'll get to this in the warm-up stuff, but like Michael's Weefel, BBA performance, like here's all, here's the levels of the bear crawl you can, you know, progress through and having like levels of remedial exercises, but you get to improve. I'm this level of this and, and just really harnessing that. I just think there's something really special it's- to that. So smart. And especially even when you go into younger athletes, you know, I cut my teeth as a strength coach working with younger athletes for, for a decade and having, being able to, you know, in video game parlance, like unlock a new level of something like a coach saying, okay, you've just executed that perfectly. You're now up to pro level of bear crawl. Here's what that looks like. I need you to go get a a plate from over there and we're going to do this on your fingertips. Like that's exciting. And it, you know, to a less skilled practitioner, that's just, ah, we'll just progress and regress. But there's a way to articulate that that gets a lot of excitement and buy-in if you do it right. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so let's get to the warm-up stuff, right? Because that's that's the, I mean, I, I really enjoy talking with you about the different cultures and things like that. I'm sure I could keep continuing that conversation for the rest of the podcast slot. But I know, you know, I read this amazing article you put together for Rob Pacey's site and 
on everything you've been doing with warmups. So could you just tell me a little bit about how, since you've been in your time early on as a strength coach, working with athletes performance and and that, how has your approach to the warm-up process changed over the years? And then what were some of the main factors that led to those changes? Well, I alluded to the fact that I worked with young athletes, and that was through Velocity Sports Performance, okay. where I, I was with Velocity for 12 years. And the nice thing about that, to, to kind of frame up this question, is Velocity at the time was known for having these just brutal, crazy warm-ups. The warm-up was 30 minutes long. and there was a ton of variety in it. There was, uh, well, at the time, everyone thought there was a ton of variety to it. Now, when I look back on it, I think, oh, wow, that, <laughs> surprised I didn't get bored with that or the athletes didn't. But it really was groundbreaking at the time. And it taught me that there's just a myriad of ways to get athletes primed and ready for movement. And then that was further reinforced when I went to China and I kind of adopted the exosystem, which is not far off the velocity-based approach, but they all have kind of a familiar uh, cadence to them. They all have a familiar steps of kind of a thermogenic activity, followed by some foam rolling, or foam rolling would come first, followed by some sort of thermogenic activity, then some stretching, and then like a neural prep or plyometrics, neural prep kind of stuff. That would go and 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 it was there was a lot of ABCD and it was it's ne- it's a necessity for any kind of a methodology methodology that you're putting together that especially it needs to be you know followed by a bunch of different people you need it to be scalable and there's a ton of reasons from a you know, just a teachability standpoint you need it to be that way but that gave me a huge library of possible exercises that I could choose from and once I stopped working for Exos kind of the restrictor plates came off and I saw that there were a bunch of different ways that I could keep doing this uh, and do it maybe more effectively, or at least in a way that would more closely mirror my personality and what I wanted to get out of a specific team. So, you know, I started thinking about some of these principles of uh, gamification to say it again, but that I wanted my athletes every time to come out when they came out to the floor it wouldn't just be, okay, here's the, all the soft tissue equipment over in one area, and then there's the big open space that we're going to do the warm-up. Like, I wanted there to be weird stuff on the floor every time. I wanted it to be like walking into Disneyland, and you're just like, oh, my God, what's, look at all this stuff, and you get excited. And so I wanted them to walk out, and some days there are balloons everywhere. Some days there's hacky sacks on the floor, and some days there's jump ropes. Some days there's the big, long jump ropes that, you know, you do like – two kids rotating and one kid in the middle, like school kids. And some days there's hula hoops everywhere. And some days there's Nerf dart guns on the ground. And, and all of it, I wanted to open my mind to just all the different ways that I could accomplish a movement task, but not do it by just asking someone to, to do this thing and not just do the same skips and crawls that we've been doing for years and years. And so with all of that, it came the next revelation, which was that my warm-up doesn't have to just follow this small library of approved activities that mm-hmm. look like skips and crawls, that I could make my head coach happy if my warm-up looked more like sport training, that I could become someone that's super valuable to my team if if I pay attention during practice and my coach is mad that you know, the girls, when they put on the brakes, when they're moving laterally, their upper body sways over too much. They're not rigid enough. Well, I need to make tomorrow's practice look like a 
core pillar rigidity training session that looks a ton like the blocking drill that he just did, except I'm going to strap bungee cords to their upper chest and I'm going to or throw, make them hold a medicine ball out while they do the exact same thing they just did in that drill. So that the coach is like, oh, crap, Rhett is working as part of the team. And Joel, candidly, like this is the way that my warmups went from being, you know, I was given like seven minutes to warm up a team to getting 20 minutes to warm up a team because my coach stopped seeing that, you know, my warm-up time was at the expense of his volleyball training time because I'm doing volleyball training too. If he's worried that, you know, the girls are too slow to react on defense, then my warm-ups over the next three days should look a lot like reactive defensive training. And I just need to start thinking of all the fun ways that I can take his drills, maybe regress them a little bit or use some of my toys to make them very, very sport specific. And not just with my head coach, like I'm also trying to do this with my physios. If my physios are saying, hey, you know, we've had a ton of volume of hitting in the last couple of days, the girl's shoulders all ache. Well, my physio is going to be high-fiving me after warm-up if it looks like I'm doing a shoulder prehab rehab session during warm-ups. So with those things in mind, I tried to create this framework of warming up where it was very modular, where I could I could stick in exercise where I had a general, let's say I had a general idea, like I want to use the hula hoops on this day. That would be fun. And on Tuesday, I want to break out my timing gate system and actually make them run at max velocity because that's actually something I think is really important for volleyball players to have to do. And on you know Wednesday morning, it's going to be a barefoot day, but I think that's a good day to address the fact that we had a girl last week tweak her ankle. And maybe that's in the back of everyone's mind that we need to get stronger ankles. All right. And then, you know, our coach hated that our blocking crossover mechanics are garbage. So I'm going to do bungee resisted crossovers on Tuesday morning, and I'm going to do strap wrapped shoulder resisted crossovers on Friday afternoon. And so I just kind of take that general framework and, uh, and yeah, and try to stick modules in it that are going to make everybody on my staff happy. I take a step back. I'm like, okay, is this fun enough? Like, I also want the girls coming in and being delighted that we get to dance on Saturday morning, or we're going to play a silly game that I stole from PE class, some PE teachers on Instagram on Monday afternoon. Like, it has to have enough of the fun in it. And so, once I start ticking these boxes, I get, you know, I take a step back and look at it, and it looks like a a good all-around week for a volleyball player that's going to make my head coach happy, my physios happy, my athletes happy, and me happy. Yeah, I love that. I love, um, there's a lot of things that I, I took like a ton of notes while you were talking there. But the first thing I actually want to ask you based off that, that maybe I could have asked you this before, is what is your, and this may seem like not a very linear question, but what was what is your sport background? Like, what do you do personally in your activity? Uh, I'd just be curious to learn about how that as well, because I think that that factors into to what ends up um, becoming in the program. Ah, okay. <clears throat> so I was a track guy growing up. I was a distance runner. I was a fifteen hundred meter and three thousand meter runner in college. But I adopted when I moved to Southern California to take the job with Velocity. I jumped full in on playing beach volleyball. So I have a little bit of a volleyball background. I took years off of volleyball when I moved to China and believe it or not, I bowled like five days a week. <laughs> I was, I took it. I just happened to have a 24 hour bowling alley right next to my apartment in Shanghai. And I became like a amateur, like obsessive bowler. 
and now I play pickleball. So I don't know how this, uh, I don't know how this uh, jives with your. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I can explain. Sorry, I, I think um, this is just where I'm kind of going with that. Is I think that a lot of times um, people who get into strength and conditioning, and I also look at it like you mentioned, scalable. I think that strength and conditioning athletic performance is very scalable because it's very low on chaos. It's very controlled. It's very like this is, you know, A plus B plus C, do these things. And versus now you scale that out to sport. As you move into full sport, you have more chaos, more randomness. You still have a framework, but I would imagine if you looked at a volleyball coach running in their practice versus a strength coach running there. You don't even call it practice. You say it's the session, right? That even also highlights that. You, How many changes are going to happen in the course of that strength and conditioning session? Not many, unless there's a few menu systems right. for athletes. But how many changes are there going to be in that volleyball practice? A lot. The coach saw something. Hey, let's try this. And You know what I'm saying? And so I just think that sometimes the warm-up really to me is that place where all this stuff meets, like we talk about silos. It's like, okay, the strike coach and the sport scientist and the sport coach and you know, da, da, da. But I, I feel like the warm-up is that one place where all those silos like are kind of not silos anymore necessarily. You know what I'm saying? It's like that place, like you were just saying, hey, we did this because of the physio would like this or the sport coach saw that. And I, I've talked about this with Will, <laughs> Will, I'm tripping over my words. Uh, Will Rattel, when he was on, was talking about just, just ga- like Will has a huge games background and every time him and his other coaches would play games, they'd all say, oh, we need to do this more often. And I think that we can program things more easily that we are comfortable with. And we're comfortable with it when we do it. If we play a lot, that, you know, moving from a little bit from linear into chaos on some level is more comfortable when I play. I, I experience chaos when I train. I move. I feel chaos. I know it. And that, so that's the reason I asked you that. I hope that that makes sense. Something I think about a lot with that, like how does this all fit, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to go about thinking about it. I'm, I'm fully in agreement that, that I feel the warm-up is a place for designed, controlled chaos. That... Mm. You know, I, I go on a rant sometimes when I think about the way that I probably used to approach warm-up, which is that there was a lot of variety, but I really wanted a coach that watched my warm-ups, especially when I would work with younger athletes. I would want that, like a parent or a coach that watched me, would be super impressed at how organized my team looked. Like my little group of athletes, I wanted them to look like a little militia walking down and I would cue things to make them or constrain things or cue things to make the athletes look so well disciplined. And what I now think is that that was all designed to make me look like a good coach, possibly at the expense of them being better athletes, that a more chaotic, disorganized looking warmup would probably have benefited them more. It just would have probably looked to the parents outside that, you know, that I didn't know what I was doing or I, or I just couldn't control a bunch of 12 year olds. So I, yeah, I, I fully agree that the session should be, you know, that is a place where silos meet, where sports specificity, rehab, prehab, and strength all can come together in beautiful harmony if you design your strength training better. Because if you looked at the, I didn't even mention really like the micro dosing of strength, but yeah, if you look through at the beginning of my, of any training um, block. Like if, when I start with a team, most of my warmups look like mini strength sessions because everyone's weak. 
because I'm, you know, kind of a, you know, there's a bunch of stuff I want to teach in the weight room and I either want them to, to work out the kinks on the movement mechanics of it. And I'll do that in warmups before practice, or it's just that I don't have enough time to do all of the different kind of accessory exercises I'd like to do in the weight room, like abductor, adductors, some smaller shoulder stuff. If there's core stuff that doesn't fit very well into the flow of the weight room, it all gets shoved into my warm-up. Now, one, of, one of the reasons that, that I was so excited when my worldview of warm-ups opened up was that I didn't have to beg my coach to have to give me more time in the weight room. Like I, if, if we can only weight train two times a week, no big deal. I'm just going to revamp my, mm-hmm. my warm-up so that we're doing a ton of handstand wall walk-ups and, and you know, ISOs with medicine balls and things like that that I just you know, got nixed out of the weight training session. So it just gives me more adaptability. Sorry, I went off on a tangent. Oh, I, I love that. I, I, I would just do want to clarify too, because I said warm up from a very general perspective. I'm assuming the majority of these warmups that you are talking about and we will be talking about are warm ups for sport, like before their That's sport nice. practice, not necessarily. I mean, you could be before weight room too, but I'm assuming this is more like before their sport practice. Yes. Uh, yeah, definitely. Everything I've been saying so far is before sport practice. I, of course, we do a warm up before we head, hit, head into the weight room. There is by necessity a, li- a lot less variety to that warm up. I kind of have two different uh, nine exercise series that they do with a bar on their back or stepping up on a block. I kind of need them to do that without me leading it because many times I'm setting up the weight room at that time or the groups are co- or the girls are coming in in shifts. So I'm still coaching a group up and I don't have, I can't coach the groups up in the weight room. So yes, to answer your question, warm ups in the weight room a little bit different, a little bit less variety a lot less variety. And uh, all I've been talking about is sport, pre-sport practice warm-up. Got it. Okay. That makes perfect sense too. I know just for me personally, (laughs) I've been moving in that direction as well. Just when I was at Cal, I only did the before weight room warm-ups for my teams. And so, but even then I would still try to put games and, and various things in and just get athletes excited and see smiles on people's faces before we started lifting. However, in thinking about it, if I was doing the team sport warmups as well i would want to save in many ways i would want to save a lot of that stuff before sport practice because sport is more like i said before like the weight room is more controlled sport is more chaotic and even for me personally now like i'll like if i'm low on time this is just for me but i'll even program this sometimes is if i'm doing a squat day i'll just do a four minute iso wall sit that's my warm-up okay now start your sets you know like yeah. like that's it and it does not have to be more complicated than that it's like like boost next year talks about keeping the simple days simple but then i'll go and coach like a six-year-old soccer team and i love doing animal warm-ups for that team where it was like all right yeah. everyone be a cheetah everyone be a bear you'll be a fish and you see all sorts of different fish renditions and we'll play all these warm-up games before we get the soccer ball ball out and just to get them, or, or even freeze tag, I mean, a lot of those kids who can't play soccer very well get way more out of freeze tag physically than they do trying to kick <laughs> a ball, and which is awesome. So it's like I'm trying to give all these kids like an ideal physical experience regardless of their level. And the, the more I've been doing that, like in sport coaching, albeit on the base level, the more I see, oh, yeah, like if I was, if I was a coach who, I don't know, maybe I was a high school coach, and let's say I was in charge of the weights and the practice or whatever, and or the sport practice, that's pretty much how I would do it. All the fun, chaotic stuff would be more in sport practice. Not that it can't work. I know when I was at Cal and, you know, those those athletes loved it when we did the fun stuff before the lifting. 
especially men's tennis because they love to play more than anything. But, um, <laughs> you know, so anyways, I, that just makes sense with what you're saying. I've seen that more and more the more I've diversified my coaching experience. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's almost like in it's also because in weight rooms, like I will be in 20 different weight rooms over the course of a summer <laughs> and we're not our training camps differ and and usually we're sharing weight rooms and i just don't have the liberty to take up as much space as a game might need in the weight room mm-hmm. but you know, if i had my druthers of course i would i'd be pushing fun games into all of it because i'm i'm with you the bar for for actually just having a good safe warm-up is just getting athletes warm and yeah, that bar is pretty easy to clear. Mm-hmm. Yep. You just throw up. You could do anything. Like you said, your, your four-minute wall sit, a fun game, all of it will leave a thin sheen of sweat on you and muscles activated and ready. You're, you're good to go. Yeah. You mentioned the framework, though. And so this is where I really wanted to ask you questions here to get more insight into. Because I, I, to me, I think of it like a tree. Like at the base of the tree of the trunk, it's very simple. You have your you know main main branches like your categories, but then it just gets crazy. Like and you can't necessarily define it every time. And so you mentioned thermogenics, um, so getting the muscles warm. Could you uh, for these team sport warm ups explain the main boxes that you're trying to check that all these okay. exercises will fit into? Yep. And to be clear, the main box or the only box that needs to be checked for me is the thermo part. And so if yeah. I you know if we arrive late somewhere or you know, we're super restricted on time and the coach gives me five minutes, then I just design something where there's a, a lot of movement and, uh, and that they're going to be, they're going to be a little bit warm at the end and then maybe give them 30 seconds or a minute to stretch on their own. Because if I don't have much time to stretch with them, all the athletes have know at my level, at this elite level of volleyball, they all know the place that needs their attention stretch wise and they'll, they'll get that done themselves. Um, Stretching is one of those things that moves has moved way lower on my priority list mm-hmm. uh, the older I've gotten and the more I've been doing this. But to go back to your question, I set up my, I have a very loose framework, but if I had to kind of, uh, if I had to, to boil it down, I would say I design kind of a thermogenic circuit at the beginning. Uh, so it'll be a, either a circuit where it's a variety of exercises that uh, one one or two of which are purely thermogenic. And then I'll supplement that with a couple of the exercises that I just want to tick a box. So if it's shoulder strength, if it's any strength that isn't too dynamic. So like you said, an ISO would be great here. That would make my physios happy. I don't like ISOs in the weight room because it slows things down. So ISOs work well there. And then, you know, maybe I would challenge myself to say, okay, is there a chance that I could do all four of those exercises using one of my toys? So could I roll out medicine balls and maybe partner them up and the thermogenics will be them doing a variety of different tosses while moving in a variety of different planes across the floor. And then we stop that and we do shoulder work with the medicine ball. Maybe we're all lying prone and we have to kind of be in a Superman position, passing the medicine ball back and forth between the two girls while their posterior shoulder starts burning. And maybe, you know, that ISO is I have them both get into uh, a split squat ISO. And maybe for the first round, we're seeing who can do the most chest passes while they sit in that ISO in 30 seconds. And, the, you know, all the two, all the teams are competing against themselves. Maybe, maybe I, I make it different. Maybe I, I say who can 
pass it with their partner and knock their partner off balance. But mm. from like that, that general framework, I'm like, okay, well, I've ticked the box. Like I've gotten them warm. I've gotten some shoulder strength, which I really wanted. I've gotten the isometrics that my, my physio really liked. And maybe we go through that circuit two times. It's all going to depend on time. I don't know how long everything will last. Maybe we get through everything once. Maybe we get through it twice. But I will know that if I have 15 minutes to warm these girls up, that my thermo circuit should probably take about five, six minutes before I have to get them to um, move on to do some strength stuff. You know, my head coach wanted me to work on some linear speed stuff, says the girls aren't quick picking up short dinks over the net. So I have that reserved for the third portion after stretching, which is kind of a neural prep. So to answer the question, to back up for a second, it's a thermogenic circuit, which sometimes has some strength peppered into it, maybe kind of a movement, fun movement puzzle, or, you know, it's, or a kid's game could be part of this. Can I make a a game with frisbees and stuff? Also look a little bit like volleyball and do some volleyball specific good work, whatever. After that, we move on to what I call a strengthen and lengthen section, which is just because it rhymes, but that's where we do a couple of big bang for the buck stretches, like just three, four stretches for the stuff that I need to be mobile, a T-spine stretch, shoulder, hip, ankle, done. But I'll pepper in some kind of on the ground strength with that. That's where we might do some like a crow pose for wrist strength. That's where we could do any of our push-ups or I could challenge them with some skater squat variations, eyes closed balance stuff. Maybe we're starting an ankle rocker series in here, things that are just kind of low level, but we go back and forth between a bang for the buck stretch and then some strength work. Like I love telling my athletes, hey, every all the other teams don't get strong during this warm up. We are going to get stronger. We're going to get more powerful while everyone else is just getting their bodies warm and doing skips and knee hugs. Then we move into neural prep. And that can be low level plyometrics that get higher level. That can be a sprint day. That can be a game where there's no restrictors. Like I wouldn't want to play tag with elite athletes in a neural section even though it's a game. That's a high-level game. My girls are so competitive. They will absolutely blow out a hamstring trying to play a stupid kid game if I put it in the thermo section when they do it when they're cold. So like, I have to put certain games in the neural prep session. That's where I'm going to put any of the stuff that my head coach wants. I, I saw my head coach working on in practice two days beforehand. I'm going to put it in that section because I can do it at speed and uh, at game speed, except I can maybe constrain it or perturb it in some little way with some of my toys. And so that's where that stuff goes. You know, if we're not hitting, if he thinks our arm swing speed is bad, maybe that's where those, like I'll steal the towel throws from baseball or, or we'll throw badminton uh, birdies, the shuttlecocks for distance. We'll have a competition Um, maybe as individuals, or maybe I'll do a team competition where everyone put them in groups of three. So they get a little bit of rest. And one girl throws the shuttlecock. The next girl stands in that place and throws the shuttlecock. And we see who can get all the way across the gym floor in the fewest throws. So whatever it is, like that's that would be the arm speed thing that my coach would be buying me a beer later <laughs> to thank me for. Anyway, that's the way my brain works. It's kind of three main sections, a thermogenic, a stretching and strength, and then a neural prep section. And uh, from there, the world is my oyster. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes me think too about because it is a place where silos meet, it almost gives the sport coach a chance to get another perspective 
on what it means to be athletic, but in a way that is athletic. This isn't the weight room. This is something that really links, or I shouldn't say the weight room necessarily, but this isn't necessarily just barbells and dumbbells. This is something that links strength to athleticism and happens right in that context. I just think that's that's just such a cool way to kind of fuse or get another mind involved in a way that's non-threatening to actual practice, you know, but is similar. And I just I just think there's so many really interesting elements that come with that. I you know I was going to ask you a little bit too about um there's a lot of specific questions I would probably have, you know, it's be easy for this podcast to say, okay, what are all the tools you use for this? And you know, <laughs> but I mean it's it is it is something you just have to start doing. And even I guess what I was going to ask you was how much of that do you have as with the maybe the the barbells versus I'm coaching a sport where in coaching a sport there's a lot more intuitive changes. I found that when I started warming athletes up, like sometimes I would just say, all right, everyone get a partner in a medicine ball. And when I first started kind of a more athletic warm up, I guess you could say it wasn't even games at first. The first thing that I started doing that got me more in tune to a more athletic series of events was actually doing the same old dynamic stretching walks and things and activations, but not actually having it scripted. So I'd go and I didn't have the piece of paper as a coach and I would just start going off the cuff and that transformed it into, well, hey, why don't we do this? Okay, why don't we do this? And so what I'll ask you here within those, um, the thermogenics, the strength and lengthen, and then the neural reaction, do you have that fully scripted ahead of time or do you like, you kind of get ideas as you go and, and change things the same way a sport coach might? I do have it scripted and I would say I have it scripted to about 95%. There's always wiggle room. So for example, if my physio came to me and said, Hey, I'd like to do more wall sits. Like I really think that those would be good. And if I'm doing wall sits and maybe wall sits is on my page, right? It is on that page. I was like, okay, I got to do this for the good of them. But you know, after the first set of wall sits, I'm like, okay, that doesn't fit in my general framework of this just sucks. You know, like, it's just, it's a momentum killer in my, yeah, well, yeah, in my exactly. so, so instead I bet I can get my head coach pretty excited if we work on left-handed passing ability. So I'll partner them up. And while one person's wall sitting, another person is soft tossing volleyballs at their non-dominant arm. Mm. And they have to do precise passes to, to that athlete that now I'm having stand in a hula hoop and they can't leave the hula hoop to catch the ball. And we're going to see how many in a minute of wall sits, how many perfect passes you can get back with your opposite hand while you're constrained by a wall, while you're constrained by this, whatever. This is off the top of my head, Joel. I don't know, but um, I've never done that specific example before, but, but that's the way my brain would think. And there would, that's where I would be freestyling it. Like you're talking about, and I would make changes in subsequent sets. So whenever we go back, that's usually where my, I'm usually more creative on, on the floor. And if I don't do it during that session, I'll review it right afterward and make a note in my spreadsheet. Because, I mean, I think I might have mentioned in the article, I keep, I spend as much time creating my warmups for a week as I do with my weight training sessions. Because I want to make sure there's a balance there that we're moving in all the movement planes that I've ticked every box, not only in a given day or a given session, but also in a given week that there's enough balance between fun and linear speed, lateral speed, strength, rehab, whatever. So I'll make a note in my spreadsheet right afterward being like, hey, the wall sits were were really boring at first. Put more fun stuff like that. But next time, 
I hate that the girl standing there is really just tossing a ball for that entire minute. That's not very mm-hmm. good for her. Let's put her in a split squat. So she's doing a, or whatever it is, I'll make a note to make it better next time. And then I'll just make, you know, and then I'll, I'll copy and paste that workout three weeks later. And then with all the new tweaks and come back to it then. Yeah. There's so many being in that, that warm up setting, just even categorizing it, like it's sport practice. And you mentioned microdosing strength, but I feel like you can get a lot of free training in like, like free extra training in, in the scope of a sport practice, simply because the athletes don't necessarily have the mindset. Like I'm getting under a weight, I'm getting under a heavy weight. I'm preparing to, to train in that manner. I feel like when athletes are playing are in more of a game set, they don't perceive the work the same. And I, I believe that actually then they recover from it faster. Like if I was in a wall sit and I was doing this, I, I mean, even when I'm having a conversation, I was having a conversation with someone having a wall, doing a wall sit the other day and it just flew by. Like <laughs> I wasn't thinking about any sort of fatigue or anything like that. It was substantially easier. And I would, Corey Schlesinger had mentioned with like ISO lunge having a pro basketball player just dribble a basketball while they do an ISO lunge. Like it distracts the mind from it being this fatiguing exercise. And now I'm just in the present. I'm just doing something. I'm having fun. And I would think that I, it would be kind of cool to see like if someone was doing a wall sit uh, for time, how long they could go or how they perceived it versus how do you perceive this? If, yeah, you're in a wall sit, but someone's throwing you a ball and you have to do it with your left hand and you have to do X, Y, Z. I just feel like it gives such a different framework that people could actually recover from really quickly. And because it, it, it's not like it's not the typical frame, I guess, of mine. At least that's what I would that that's how I perceive that extra opportunity on that level. Joel, I'm guessing that if I allowed my athletes to do a wall sit while surfing Instagram, that I could get them to do it for four minutes in a row. And they would <laughs> beg me to let them do another set after about 30 seconds of rest. So yeah, I think that there's a 100% chance that you can trick your athletes into, into doing you know longer duration holds of stuff like that when they are distracted. And, you know, I certainly know that. I've, I haven't done the Instagram trick, but but I am, I'm pretty certain that would work, but I, uh, especially with ISOs. And that's why I, that's another reason I move them out of the weight room is I can do mm. more, more variety and warm up with the ISOs to keep them interesting, much like Corey does with the basketball bouncing. I've done that. I think I saw Corey doing that. And I know I've done that with my athletes bouncing an ISO. Actually, it's part of my, uh, it's part of our competition. I do it with a tennis ball and a volleyball doing the bounce between the legs thing with the constraint that if you drop the ball, it goes flying, you are not allowed to go get it. You have to sit there in your own. Uh, <laughs> you <defeat> lost it. Because <laughs> I, I can't have you rewarded by getting out of your ISO by messing up. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. You know, I was going to ask you too. So with that, uh, you mentioned like bouncing a ball, bouncing a tennis ball. How do you integrate rhythm into the warm-up? Like, do you ever do anything to music, like anything that involves a dance component? Because I know that's an amazing way to distract the conscious mind from, you know, the, from the, so yeah, let me know. Uh, tell me what you, how you incorporate that if you do. Yeah, I used to be, uh, you know, in volleyball circles, I, I don't know if I was known for, but I was made fun of a lot for being a dancing coach because I push the dancing into, uh, and, and it's not a lot, but it always, and here's the thing. If I have the girls dance, so what I would do is uh, usually once a month or so, I would set up a projector in the training hall and I would just play YouTube videos of just dance video games where, you know, you, it's usually I'd pick the ones where there's four people in a group and 
and I would line them all up and we would do that as our thermogenic. So basically we would do a three minute dance and then I'd get them on the floor doing some, some strength work and then I'd pop them up again for another dance. And we would just go back and forth doing dances and strength dances and stretching dances. And, and during those, of course, every phone comes out, all the coaches want to take video. And so on social media, it looks like that's all I do, but in truth, that is like twice a month, maybe. In fact, this year with the German team, we didn't do it one time, not even once. It just never came up. We were doing so many other things. And then I famously danced during competition warm-ups, but that's not to music necessarily. That's just to release some tension and, uh, and just have fun and get some smiles and distract the other team. But I do think there's a component to rhythm. I, I think of like agility ladder work. We, in fact, we never did agility ladders this year with the German team, but I have done agility ladders. It's just one of the dozens of tools that I'll use for thermogenics and warmups. But I think it's a fun thing to do to have music going and you have to be doing the steps of a, of a ladder drill at a certain cadence. I think that probably with, with sports like sprinting, there's a much better correlation between the better dancers and the better athletes. Because I'm thinking like I've had some pretty horrific dancers who are pretty amazing volleyball players. And I wonder if there's some PhD student somewhere who studied this, but it wouldn't surprise me if better 400 meter runners are better sprinter or better dancers. But I do a little bit. I do a little <laughs> bit with it, but it's not uh, it's not focused. There's not a lot of intent behind it. I don't know that it's uh, moving the needle. It's like you said, if I reverse engineer my best volleyball players, I don't think that the best ones are good dancers. So it wouldn't be something that I would think to key in on um, rhythm wise. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, like what you had, had seen from that that rhythmic ability. And I think it, yeah, it is kind of, um, I guess it probably depends on context a little bit too. I, I Yeah, I found it interesting you mentioned track. I know in working with track in the weight room, those athletes were most likely to dance between sets more than anybody. <laughs> and yeah. I will say too, like, I do think that the track events, this is my theory and I haven't, you know, if I can go back and I guess, you know, to even do research on dancing, how do you, how do you, um, you know, in a lab say you're a good dancer, right? That's a kind of a funny <laughs> kind of, you know, I'm sure there's yeah. a way to do it, but that's kind of a funny proposition yeah. in and of itself. But to me, the athletes that were the most rotational, so like a like a triple jump, for example, requires like a lot of 3D like rotation and coordination. Honestly, even a sprint acceleration, that's like kind of my low level theory is sprinters that cannot capture rotation in a start because it is very complex and, and rhythmic, mm -hmm. if you will, and who just go straight linear and everything is only sagittal plane for the most part. I My theory is, is they might not be as good a dancers as people who can capture a little bit more rotation. But that, you know, anyone doing their PhD out there who wants to try to put that one together <laughs> here's as you were talking about that here's another way the phd could approach it because i think everyone would agree that like team brazil are all great dancers team thailand all amazing dancers team china garbage dancers <laughs> team germany uh, i mean okay i haven't i haven't seen we haven't seen a lot of it yet but that would be another way to go. That'd be another way to go. Yeah, Just, imagine like uh, Spain. Spain may be pretty good. You know, it probably depends. Oh, I, yeah. Italy. I don't know. I've, I've been in Italy, but maybe Italy a little better than like Germany or the Netherlands. Yep. I, <laughs> it would be interesting to see like even playing style and like, you know, kind of how mm -hmm. do they approach how, what is their style within the game based off of those, those elements? I imagine you kind of, if you can't dance, you make up for it with more intellectual, you know, I can't dance. So I'm going to 
put more mental effort or more hustle into this. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. All right, well, right on. Uh, let me let me ask you this: is I think that within this, um, or actually, before I ask you with like with coach and coaches and buying, because I think that's instantly a really big thing. A lot of people will ask: is maybe just take me through. I, I know you've talked about all the different. Like, okay, here's thermogenics, here's some things we'll do, here's strength and length, and length, and here's things we'll do, here's reaction or neural. Take me through like one whole session, right? So like players roll onto the court, take me through what a whole session, just sample session looks like, just to tie this together a little bit more more concretely. Like if we're talking about chaos to linear, let's bring it in linear a little bit. So take me through what one session might look like. All right, let me think about this. Um, I didn't put it in the I didn't put in the question list, so I'm, I'm springing. Oh, no. I'm springing it this is the, this is this is good. Of course, this is. I mean, uh, this is why I have an Excel spreadsheet filled with thousands of <laughs> warm ups. So, a uh, general day. So, let's say that I am using the let's say I'm using let's see tennis balls or sticks. Which one? Tennis balls, maybe. Yeah. All right. We'll just say tennis balls. I would have everyone start for like a thermogenic. We would do something like maybe we do like a neurological like awakening where we'd be doing kind of a, a regular heel toe raise in place, but they have to throw the tennis ball behind their back and then catch it in front of them. And then if that starts to go well, they have to do it with their non-dominant hands, still keeping the heel toe rock that I need to do to kind of get their ankle prepped. And then we maybe take that across the floor. Maybe we use the time during the thermosection to actually also do some out of alignment strength. So maybe I have them walk on the, uh, you know, on the outside of their ankles, like uh, with their, with their ankle in that kind of compromised out of aligned uh, uh, space. So they get stronger and more supple. They're all the while still maybe throwing that ball behind their back and catching it in front, or maybe even catch throwing it from in front and catching it behind their back that would be something we'd start with and then i could progress that with games where we are kind of uh i can instruct the girls to have they could partner up and they are doing kind of like a, a different cadences with their feet so maybe like micro skipping but also they're holding the balls in a way that oh this is hard to describe but maybe like they're partner has their hands above their the other girl's hand the girls the one girl is holding two balls in their hands outstretched they start skipping Mm. and oh so sorry i have this wrong the partner is holding the balls outstretched in their hands the other girl has her hands on top of those hands across from that person they start micro skipping at any moment the person can drop a ball and that person, the, the person with their hands on top has to scoop underneath and grab it. From there, we wouldn't have to have them moving in a different plane. So we would do some agility side to side. So one girl's holding two balls. She's hold, throwing one to the left. The girl shuffles over and retrieves it and then brings it back and then moves to the left, uh, to the right. We go back and forth in that way. From there, we could then, I could have them all with an individual ball together looking at me. I could have them holding it in front of them. And I could say, right and then when i say right they have to drop the ball and do a 360 spin turning to the right and grab it before it hits the ground the second time in between these tennis ball exercises i'd probably want to get them down on the ground to do some low level strength like maybe put the ball in your hitting arm lay flat prone and do like a functional range conditioning infinity hover where the ball starts behind your neck 
and then keeping your arms as high as you can, exchange it between behind your neck and in your lower back. And we do an infinity hover that way. Afterwards, maybe I would have them stand up. Remember, thermogenics are still really important. So I'd have them partner up facing their partner, one partner backpedaling, the other partner moving forward. And you have to exchange the balls right hand to right hand and left hand to left hand. So two balls, both kind of simultaneously throwing and catching. Or maybe they have to move it kind of in a square pattern while moving laterally this time. And maybe we're skipping laterally instead of moving laterally. Maybe they're balancing the ball on the top of their hand while they have to do a Turkish getup or balancing on top of their fist while they do a Turkish getup. Maybe they're balancing on the top of their hand while they have to go from full kneeling to half kneeling to standing. Maybe I make that harder by making them do it with their eyes closed. And bam, all of a sudden it's been six and a half minutes and my thermogenic session is over. I've ticked the box on some shoulder strength, some neurological, I mean, it's not the neural section, but some low level just wake up stuff. Because what I hate, of course, are just any zombies in warm up. Like I need them constantly in rapt attention. All these things have them concentrating while also having to move through a bunch of volleyball-specific positions. They had to get into full kneeling, full squat. They had to get into all these positions that they're going to come up to come up with in volleyball, but it's been neurologically engaged. So next, we would all be doing kind of that strengthen and lengthen session where, where we would start, let's say we start in a push-up, and I have us just go two inches off the ground and hold that position for 10 seconds, then go to a full push-up, hold some fingertips push-up for 10 seconds to get some fingertip strength, which is really important for volleyball. Then jump into a frog stance. Let's get some T-spine rotation by doing some, you know, one hand to the sky, rotating, holding that for a couple seconds, going to the other side, holding it, getting some strength, that end range of motion, maybe doing that four times and then going to something more ballistic. Now we're twisting as many times as we can in three seconds, five seconds. from that frog position, we're still sitting in that. We'd get into one ankle and do some kind of ankle stretching, like moving, kind of exploring the corners of an ankle stretch, get over to the other ankle, do that. From that position, maybe we do some external and internal rotation of our hip by touching our knee to the ground and back up a few times. The frog leads pretty easily into a crab. And so we we lean back into a crab position. I'll have them Maybe do a 180-degree walk in crab or move backwards in crab, forwards in crab. Maybe do a tabletop stretch to get our um, biceps tendons all stretched out and maybe uh, mix up, you know, do another kind of crab crawl or do some, I can't think they're called spiders or something where you're touching your hand to your foot, uh, right hand to right foot from that crab position. You can touch it above the other knee or below the other knee. So we'll switch that up a little bit. Maybe hit another tabletop, this time with your fingers rotated all the way back. Walk out to a downward dog position from there. So we're getting some shoulders and some straight leg ankle mobility. Spend some time in down dog in each individual ankle. From there, we could go into a cobra to make sure our anterior chain is all stretched out. Take some big belly breaths, turn to the right, turn to the left. From here, we could do some more push-up variations, or maybe I want to you know, we could have gone into a crow pose before that. I do like to get some, some wrist strength. 
But from there, we could do like a Kelly Starrett hip opener series, which is one that I love to go to war with, where we put one foot up. It almost looks like the world's greatest stretch, which is an Exos favorite that I also still love, where we would kind of get into a big, elongated hip stretch position, uh, lunge position, get as deep as we can in there, explore the corners, moving around there for five seconds or so, take it into a pigeon where we're also going to explore the corners, maybe try to get some splits done, explore the corners there. Maybe I even do a, a lateral split where we try to compress the ground in between the lateral splits. And, uh, you know, so we're getting strength and end range of motion. I think that's a general principle that makes a lot of sense to me. And I love, um, we get the other side on all those, uh, stretches. And so maybe that ticks the box of strengthen and lengthen for that, that bit. After that, we go to our neural prep section where I can have us doing the same kind of hand eye reaction. Oh, oh, there's a good Ido Portal hand and eye reaction drill that I stole from him where you just keep the ball elongated in one arm, outstretched in front of you. The other hand is open and by your cheek, and you attempt to as quickly as possible release the ball, exchange your arms and grab it without letting the ball drop or without you having to kind of throw it up to yourself. So it's a very, it's a, it's an exercise that's hard to do the first time you try it really hard to do. If I make you, you know, do a 360 degree jump beforehand, or if I make you do quick feet beforehand, or if I make you roll onto your back, do a, you know, a single leg pistol kind of rolling, get up to do that exercise. Then I can make that, uh, that partner hand drop, a little bit more complicated by having someone run around a cone before they have to do the drop reaction or just quick feet, different quick feet variations. Kind of the last thing that I would probably do is we call it kind of the dog uh, go fetch where one athlete's in athletic position, like they play volleyball and the other athletes behind them with the ball. And you know, the athlete is of course waiting to see the ball crest over their head. And then once they see it, they have to go and run it down before it bounces twice. You can also do this in the traditional way of like the athlete standing in front of the other athlete with two balls outstretched to each side. And, you know, it's just a straight up acceleration drill that way. There's tons of variety to that, but that's how I would design that three part grouping of kind of thermogenics and to strengthen and lengthen into a neural circuit all just with uh, everybody having a tennis ball. Boy, did I just talk for like, I talked for longer than the 15 minute section. I think that, Joel, that, I'm sorry. That, that's totally fine. Yeah. And, and being within the context of a tennis ball too, or, or whatever that that's certainly helpful. Or I think, cause it's easy to all this stuff too. It's kind of like, even just watching like Ido Portal or watching Ido Portal video. I'm like, I, I just, sometimes I don't even know where to start. And that's where it's nice to have, Okay, here's just one thing. So if you had just one thing, you could start with this. I a lot of times I would do, you know, my my process was somewhat similar to yours. Although I, like I said, it was in the weight room. So for me, my uh, the strengthen and length lengthen it was just isos at the end of the whole weightlifting session, and I would just do like, all right, we're gonna do a bunch of stuff with medicine ball. We're gonna do a lot of fun things that we'll do some like chasing or racing or like like you said, like holding the two uh, tennis balls out to your side and dropping them, and athletes race to get them, those kind of things, and that we lift. So I just took the strength and the length and out in the weight room and put it at the end, uh, with the, with the ISO holds. But uh, other than that, I, you know, I think that's kind of that, that's a similar, a similar route to what I ended I mean, up taking myself. 
you know, Joel, you brought up, well, I brought up Ido and then you brought him up again. I'm so happy that, you know, that's an, that's a great example of, of somebody that I had not, it was not on my radar until I started working abroad to circle back to mm-hmm. the first question you asked. But secondly, Ido Portal like, is one of the greatest sources of inspiration when it comes to kind of like movement puzzles. You know, if you've ever seen him, he'll do a thing where he'll get, he'll ask you, I've gone to a couple of his workshops and you'll start in a prone position and he'll just lay the stick across your feet. So you'll have to bend your knees. So your feet are up in the air. He'll lay the stick across your feet and you just spend five minutes seeing if you can go from prone to supine with that stick still in the, on the bottom of your feet, never letting it drop, rolling around and having to contort yourself mm-hmm. into a hundred different positions to try to keep that. That in itself is just such a fantastic movement puzzle that ticks the box of being incredibly engaging, lightly thermogenic, and uh, like really, really fun and difficult putting you into a bunch of positions. He has a, he has a ton of those. Yeah, with all that stuff too, I think if we look at sport in the lens of a more sports science-oriented lens, the question would be, and people would ask this too, even I asked this when I very first saw Ido Portal videos as I was thinking, well, what's the adaptation here? You know, what what is right. what is going on in, in for, to simplify it? And the more I understand, I, you know, I spent some time with uh, Rafe Kelly at Return of the Source, which is like largely a parkour retreat in Washington State. And it's funny because it would be, hard to quantify and say okay well this is exactly what we did that transfers to something else in life but i just as a general example and then i'll I'll ask you a question as a follow-up is i know in going to that retreat and one of the things i remember very distinctly was like doing parkour in creek beds with different rocks different lengths apart or making challenging jumps and i was around people who are very good at it and very athletic and so part of the process to see if i could make a jump would be well, to start with a, from a closer rock first, before I try to clear a huge gap, I'll try a smaller gap. And then I'll find another way that's a little further. And then I'll find another way that's further until finally I'm ready to do the whole thing. And after a week of that, or those types of, those type, that type of activity, I was back at the gym, back at home. And there was a, um, I don't know what you call it. I should know the official name for this. But basically, if you're on the monkey bars and you're you're swinging and then you completely release from a bar and you swing forward like to another bar like 6 feet away and grab it i don't oh, know what that's called but me neither yeah there was I know exactly what you're talking about yeah i yeah. know there's a name for it and there was a bar at the gym that was probably i bet you it was like it's pretty far apart it's probably about 7 feet apart uh 6 or yeah actually maybe more like 7 or 8 it's pretty far and a few months before i went to rafe's thing I, there was no way, at least mentally, I, I didn't even want to try it because I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't swing myself far enough. But I remember after I went to that, I just looked up at that bar. I was like, I can do this. And so, but I did it by, I decided to just mark my success based off where my feet went. So I didn't ah. have to grab the second bar, but I was like, okay, well, if I was to land this, my feet should finish about here. So I just did a series of springing off the one bar. Okay. My feet landed a foot under the second bar I need to get to. That's pretty good. Okay, let's see if I can go six inches further. And literally within four jumps like that, I did it. Like something I never thought I could do. And so it's hard to quantify that. You know, it's hard to say, well, what was the specific thing? But it's more like the general ability to solve movement problems, I guess, would be, and, and that's hard to quantify. But as I hear you, you know, when I hear you talk about Ido Portal and the process you're taking all these athletes through, I mean, what, what would you say to that? I'm just curious because if coaches are asking, you know, what is this, you know, what is this doing? Why are, you know, and obviously they're having fun. They're really warmed up, right? Like this is engaging. 
But I'm just curious your thoughts on that end of it. Yeah. So you touched on uh, kind of the golden principle here is that is that for it to be effective, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about my, you know, how important I think variety is and how much of a detriment I think monotony can be in any warm-up or any training program that I, you know, I just know it's a, it's a general principle of gamification that, that you know, when you're playing a video game, not knowing what's coming up next is a very big driver yeah. of engagement. And, and for that reason, I'm trying to constantly push the athletes to you know, these, these messy outer edges of their athleticism. But if I'm constantly doing that and all we're doing is failing all day, it's also not effective because another principle of gamification is mastery. You know, that's what the best video games do is they, they are throwing a lot of different stuff at you, but you see yourself getting better. You play the level over and over again and you start crushing it. You start remembering, you start getting the, you know, you start getting the, the keypad and, and, you know, the cadence of the, of the buttons correctly and, and everything gets easier. So you do need, this is the art of it is you do need to come back to that fun. You know, I have a parkour warm up when I, when I have the kind of the blocks available and the kind of the things that we can bound over vault over available in my gyms, we'll do parkour warmups and I'll want to do it often enough that they can build on the skills that we did the previous time. If I wait too long between parkour warmups, then it's everybody starting at square one again. And I know this is answering kind of the first part of your question and we'll get to buy-in in a second. But yeah, I want them to, at the end of the, you know, an example of this would be knee jumps, you know, jumps where you start from full kneeling, you kind of do a big uh, arm swing, you jump from kneeling to standing. And that's something that we start at the beginning. And I usually only do these in warmups, but it goes from something where we do the standard issue knee jump to one where I'm doing it often enough that hopefully by the end of the season, we can do a knee jump to a single leg landing with a 90 degree turn, you know, or I'm able to, you know, add a movement afterward. Like that would be the dream. And that's not going to be possible if we only do that once a month. So that's, that's the first part. The second part is the way I get buy-in which is that for all of the crazy tennis ball things that I just described for you, I have hopefully in equal measure exercises that are straight up volleyball that look like volleyball practice. I get so much buy-in by the fact that, you know, four or five days a week, the girls are doing, you know, crossover blocking movements just with a, a bungee cord around their waist or a strap or, you know, they're doing approach jumps like a volleyball spike jump, either resisted or assisted to work on slamming on the brakes that, you know, that sometimes I'm sitting them under a net. So their butt is super low and we're throwing volleyball. And then the assistant coaches are hitting volleyballs at them in a very, very low crouch down position that I know the coach wants them to be in on defense. And so I can get away with exploring their athleticism having a messy warm-up that looks super fun because within that warm-up, if I've designed it well, maybe there's one exercise a day that I know the head coach will love, or I just know that the next practice is going to be just laden with volleyball-specific stuff, or I'm taking a second during a stretch to explain what we'll be doing later that day and explaining that, hey, even though it looks like we're doing hula-hooping drills, like we're going to be hula-hooping, and believe it or not, 
I have found that my athletes that can hula hoop are the ones that I don't have to worry about knee injuries because their hips are this wonderful Hmm. gimbal of mobility. So I'm using this silly kids exercise to screen to see if maybe you need a little bit more time in the evenings doing some hip opening stretches. And that's what's going to happen if you are a totally terrible hula hooper. By the way, we're going to practice hula hooping and I'm going to throw a medicine ball at your head. So you have to practice bracing and catching a medicine ball like you would setting a medicine ball. So this is actually a setting exercise that you're going to practice being better at overhand handling a volleyball while being dynamic in your lower body in the way of hula hooping, like a disassociation exercise. And if I can hit that quick 30-second spiel with a head coach that's in within earshot and, and athletes, they're nodding their heads and they're bought in, never have to do it again, we're good to go. And I do that a ton during the first month of rolling out a bunch of unique warm-ups, a lot of education. By the end of the season, I'm not doing it at all. Everyone knows that either I've explained it before or they just understand that there's a method to the madness. Yeah, I love that. You know, there's another, you know, people who are listening to this, looking at, oh, here's, I'm going to do this graduate research study or, or whatever. I like hula hooping. Can you hula hoop for 30 seconds? And what was the, what was the incidence of knee yeah, injury? Catch, catch and throw a medicine ball back to someone. You'd be surprised how many people think that they're good at hula hooping that cannot throw a medicine ball back and forth overhead or catch and brace doing both at the same time. Yeah. So last thing, just quickly before we get out of here, Rhett, was, and I mentioned this before, but buying with the sport coaches. So people looking to do this, especially once it's before sport practice, I, I think sometimes for the weight room, it's like, all right, well, you're in the weight room. So whatever you're going to do, you know, I, I mean, that's, I think where I had a pretty free license to do a lot of those things. Uh, but I, you know, I sport coaches expect things in different places as well, but I'm curious what the process of buy-in. So these sport coaches that you're doing these things, uh, you're warming up the players like this. Tell me a little bit about that dynamic as it unfolded for you. Yeah, it's been different in all of the different uh, countries I've worked. The with China, you know, and this is kind of the way I approached a lot of teams is that I would see what they were doing already, and then I I make myself adopt sixty percent of what they're doing, and then I just start peppering in my forty percent, and I slowly adjust that over the coming weeks and months until it's 100% me. And I've taken out all the silly exercises that they do that I think are a waste of time. (laughs) Um, They could be spent doing other stuff. I tell you, buy-in has never been a problem because I start immediately going to the coach. Before I start work with the coach, I ask, okay, what are the biggest handbrakes on our team? What is keeping our team from being on a podium? Like, Is it that we're not fast enough? Is it that we're not jumping high enough? Is that we're plagued by injury? And whatever they say, I say, okay, great. Then if you don't mind, I'm going to start making our warmups look like a blank session. So we're too slow. I'm going to start putting speed into at least three of our warmups a week where I'm going to need them sprinting. I'm going to put up the timing gates so they know it's serious. And we're going to be doing a variety of different sprints to end every session because there's no way to get faster without just practicing being faster by being freaking fast. And so I'm going to gamify the shit out of it by putting up the timing gates and posting the results and making a leaderboard. And we're going to see who our fastest athletes are. And I'm going to have everyone competing every single Tuesday and Saturday to get in the top group on that leaderboard. So you're going to see that in warm up. Secondarily, I think to get faster, we need to, you know, 
work on our ankle mobility. So you're going to see me doing a bunch of ankle stuff in this warm up, And then I think to get faster, we're going to need to spend more time sprinting in a bunch of different directions. So I'm going to use things like the Frisbees that might look chaotic and crazy. Actually, I use Frisbees because these girls suck at throwing the Frisbee. <laughs> and to catch a Frisbee so- thrown by somebody that sucks is really difficult and requires a lot of agility and speed. So it might look like I'm treating your athletes like dogs at a park. I'm actually using this as a way to trick them into giving me 100% of speed in a variety of different planes to do this. So that's a, that's a conversation I have with my head coach. And it's just, you know, this is a needs assessment. If you've ever, you know, been in sales, like this is just simple selling 101. You have to say, hey, what you're going to see over the next couple of weeks in warm-up might look unconventional, but let me tell you what, you're, what you might not realize you're seeing. Yeah, I tell you, the Frisbee is amazing. I mean, if you were to give me like three tools, and I need to start working with the hula hoop more. It's funny, my kids are using hula hoops and I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to take this and borrow it and start going over some ideas. But yep. for me, it's usually like dowel rods, medicine balls, Frisbees. Like those are three I use all the time. Oh, and man. so I, I, you know, the things that are like circular, you know, things that uh, like a ball or something. Yeah, circular. right. So, yeah, I mean, I, do you have any, would you say you have any go-tos recently or, or in your last, you know, the last place you were at that you were really kind of using? I mean, they're all on the table. That's the beauty of it. But anything you were kind of catering towards the most? Yeah. So this year I, I invested. So every year I try to buy myself a new kind of big ticket toy. You know, one year it was the, it was the timing gates. One year it was the jump mat. One year it was, you know, it was a bunch of, I got a bunch of K boxes one year. But I've been buying a lot of uh, of stuff for warmups, and that means I have to get eight of them, you know, because I generally my team has sixteen athletes on it. So I bought eight of those aqua bags, um, you know, just the bags yeah. that you fill with water you can hold in front of you or behind you, and I can do a lot of kind of constraints based stuff with those. That that little bit of instability that I can put kind of in in, in their upper body. It leads to a bunch of nice adaptations, I think, when it comes to having to be better at slamming on the brakes and not having your core kind of uh, bend too much and and be a big energy leak. It's good for that. It's great for making isos. You know, any of your split squats, any of your wall sits all get tougher that way. It's also a nice thing. You Holding it overhead is a good shoulder stability. So I got a bunch of bang for the buck out of my eight aqua bags this year. And, uh, you know, I have the vests that you can also put them in to get, keep your hands free, where we can then be moving around and maybe catching some medicine balls or volleyballs in conjunction. Um, as far as lower ticket items, like I also get a bunch of mileage out of our, I have these like rolling ropes. So instead of just jump ropes, there are so many fun things that David Weck and others are doing with uh, RMT ropes that, uh, that are neurologically challenging burn out the shoulders can be used in conjunction with isometrics and some lower body stuff that there's so much variety you can do with those that I've been having a ton of fun, uh, kind of exploring, exploring those, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. You know, I have those, I wrap the girls up in the, in I have those, um, those physical industry straps. I get, I've been doing a lot of kind of rotation and anti-rotation stuff with those this year those are really fun to play with. I, you know, I have 20 hacky sacks. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, Randy Huntington, uh, back when I was working in China, Randy, Randy Huntington was the, uh, was the speed coach over there for their track for a bunch of their track stars and jumpers. And he said that 
he thought hacky sacking was a sneaky, wonderful hip warmer, hip opener with all that internal and external mm-hmm. rotation. And, and so I, you know, I've been doing, I went online and looked up 20 different hacky sacking games and I try to incorporate those into my, uh, into my training. I also did the same thing with those old school reaction balls. I mean, I I've had those sitting in cover, you know, sitting in the corner of a thousand weight rooms that I've worked in and kind of use them a little bit, but I just went online and looked for what PE teachers are doing with reaction balls. There's so many fun, engaging games that can be tweaked to be even more thermogenic that I've been using uh, the reaction balls with. So, uh, you know, and it doesn't, you know, gosh, I could keep going, but mm-hmm. I've been looking online. Ido Portal now is doing a bunch of fun stuff with little sticks, kind of like a kind of six, eight inch sticks, like dowel rods where you're throwing them back and forth. You can color each end and, and you have to react to catch a different end. You have to, you know, balance it on the, on the palm of your hand and go through a bunch of different movement puzzles. You know, that's another, I have not played with that yet, but I can't wait to get 10, eight to 10 sticks for my team next year and have built out a whole like small stick thermo circuit that I can do with them. Yeah. I love it. It just really does kind of, at least to me, really bring that theme of, yes, we're warming up, but we're, it's like, we're almost here first and foremost to solve movement puzzles and all the other stuff we get out of it's kind of a really good byproduct that also warms us up for our sport, you know? And, 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 you know, speaking, sorry to cut you off, Joel, you just made me think of something that when it comes to these puzzles and when it comes to the buy-in, much like squatting for speed with 40 kilos differentiates our starters, like also by and large, a lot of the girls that are good at solving these puzzles are our best players. Yep. Like you can see, you know, I, you know, I, I mentioned, we don't see it that much with dancing and rhythm, but there, I find that with a lot of these kind of being able to go from volleyball to catching a frisbee to working a hacky sack, a lot of our best athletes rise to the top of these little challenges. Yeah. And that's it. That's like what Corey is talking about with whatever your best athletes are or whatever your best athletes are good at in the gym, do more of that. And, you know, of course, yes, you have to lift and all those things, but it, like when I was working with tennis, the best tennis players, the guys who were on the top courts were usually the best at a lot of the movement. And they were pretty simple, even just things like cartwheels and monkey bars and different movements like Marinovich style things on the Mm -hmm. physio ball. And, but the best players were the best at those. They just had the best body control. And so I'm like, well, let's just do more of this stuff. It's great. And it, it never was a bad thing. I mean, it was always something that was so solid and yeah, really it's, it's just a lot of fun too. It's, you know, versus sitting there and trying to find, you know, I mean, I guess this just being for the weight room, but for me, I would rather spend five or 10 more minutes doing things like that than finding different auxiliary lifts to do and, you know, coach that very right. discreet level and that kind of thing. It just seemed like you got so much more out of it. And, and, you know, Joel, we've mentioned so many kind of schools of thought people. You just mentioned Marv Marinovich. Like there's, there's probably a lot of people out there that are, that are thinking, yeah, oh, there's some good stuff there, but I don't know if I want to fully go all in on the Marinovich program. I don't know if I want to be a knees over toes guy. I don't know if I want to mm-hmm. be fully Edo Portal. That seems like it's a little bit too far away from what I'm doing. I don't know if I want to be a, you know, a, a, a Franz Bosch like constraints based guy. Freeing up your warm up to be an experimental laboratory for those ideas is one of the best ideas I ever had. Like, that enables me to dip my toe in the water for all these things, see what the athletes respond to, see if it highlights some blind spots for me, some handbrakes that I can then 
dive deeper into. And it, ena- it, ena- it enables me to be a bit of a dabbler and a mad scientist with this until I come up with what I think are maybe my, my big rock warm-up favorites and maybe you know the sticks rise to the top, the stuff that I do with that. Maybe I think that transfers best. But I, you know, warm up is my chance to play and fail. Also, you know, that's my chance to 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 push myself as a coach to to figure out and suss out and vet some of these different principles of training. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a good place to kind of close because we opened this conversation talking about your exposure to different cultures. You know, if it wasn't for that, you, I'm sure, you wouldn't have thought the same way or you know your thoughts on training are different because of all that exposure and in the same way on the micro level if we never see athletes move in some of these different contexts with these different tools in many of these very basic general human ways like things that children do like hula hoops even we we're never going to get the full picture of their capabilities and it's just a little bit less fun so i love that that way of putting it is it's this small part that you can you can use to make everything better. And it's, it's fun. It's, you're not, you know, you're not going to lose by trying something different. I mean, if it was, if it sucked, I'm sure. And the athletes weren't that excited about it. You just do something else, you know, and it's just the war. They're still got warmed up. I'm sure. So it's, uh, seems like a great, just a wonderful place to really become a better coach and a better, just to learn movement on a better level. I couldn't have said it better myself, Joel. Awesome. Well, Hey, Rhett, thank you so much. The time just flew by on this podcast. Love talking yeah. to you. And you know, with all this stuff too, I'll have to put some show notes in like Ido Portal, the article you wrote for Rob at Sportsmith and all that, you know, just to put videos to these exercises. But talking to you, it's been inspirational uh, to me, man. And thank you so much for being on. Uh, my pleasure, Joel. I had a ton of fun. Thanks for tuning in to another show. We'll see you next week.